This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There aren't many places where you can hear leading lights of astronomy like meteorite expert Monica Grady, Stephen Hawking collaborator John Ellis, and astronomer royal Martin Rees debating the cutting edge of space science today. But how the light gets in festival is one of them. Coming to the gorgeous town of Hay-on-Wye from the 22nd to the 25th of May, the festival will gather the world's top scientists in astronomy and physics alongside renowned philosophers, headline-making politicians, and beloved artists for four days of debates and talks. Early bird tickets are available for a short time at howthelightgetsin.org. Meanwhile, you can listen to a wealth of debates on everything from Martian exploration to the nitty-gritty of particle physics on How the Light Gets In official podcast, Philosophy for Our Times. It's available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Acast, and all good platforms. Or find out more at iai.tv. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. It's the March episode, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to Emma Marrington from the countryside charity CPRE, telling you how you can get involved with their annual Star Count campaign to help gauge how dark the skies are this month. And of course, we'll tell you our top stargazing tip of the month to see in the night sky. But first, let's take a look back at what we found while putting together the March issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. This month, we have an article looking at everything that the European Space Agency is planning on getting up to over the next decade. The agency is launching two missions in 2020, which we looked back at in our November 2019 episode called The Biggest Space Missions Launching in 2020. So today, we thought we'd take a look at those things that are happening a bit further down the road. Yeah. Um, Exciting times for ESA. Yes. They've got a lot planned for the next decade or so. Um, And... One of the things they're getting up to quite close to home is they are getting involved with NASA's Lunar Gateway. Mm. So this is NASA's uh, sort of staging station that they plan on putting into orbit around the moon. Um, And the idea is that astronauts will be able to go to the Lunar Gateway um, in the Orion spacecraft, uh, which ESA are making the service modules for, um, and then the astronauts can stay at the space station, prepare, and then descend down to the lunar surface from there. So it's a bit like the International Space Station, but instead of orbiting Earth, it's orbiting the moon? Yes, it is. Um, it's, all, it's going to be a bit smaller by the International Space Station because people aren't going to be staying there for months at a time, probably only weeks. Um, and ESA have agreed to build various bits of this. So they will be with the Japanese space agency, JAXA, They're going to build the International Habitation Module, which is one of the places where the astronauts will actually sleep whilst they're there. Um, They're going to build the European Service Module, which is sort of a 
module that gives the Orion spacecraft, that crewed module, uh, a push to put it into lunar orbit. Mm. And finally, they're building the Aspirit fueling station, which will help the, the module, the spacecraft, load up with fuel and power before they do their either their return journey or their trip down to the moon. Cool. And um, they are building this all in exchange for being able to put a European astronaut on one of the future lunar missions. Brilliant. Because um, this is the way that uh, NASA um, and ESA, basically, if you're running a space program, you don't tend to just say, if you want to get an astronaut into space, you don't just give NASA like his however many million. You tend to barter and trade. And so this is the way that ESA is going to barter and trade to get some European astronauts on the moon. It's quite good. It, it kind of makes it um, maybe a little bit less crass than just paying loads of money. You're kind of like, yeah. it's kind of more like a kind of collaborative effort. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's a much nicer way of doing things. Well, it's, um, it's interesting, though, you were saying about, because um, I, th- I think I read somewhere it was like 90 days that um, the astronauts are going to spend on the uh, Lunar Gateway. So it's not going to be continuously occupied like the ISS is? It depends on how often they decide to run missions to it, because it might just be, you know, that somebody comes, somebody goes, somebody comes, somebody goes. <laughs> yeah. um, because it's generally a good idea, like, with the International Space Station, they always want to have somebody on there to maintain it in case something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's not going to be, like, a sort of lighthouse person okay. <laughs> who lives on the lunar gate. At least I don't think so. There might be. Um, but obviously, the longer you're away from... Because it's, it's, it's a far distance. Yeah. It's, it's 400 kilometres-ish to um, low Earth orbit, where the International Space Station is. I think it's actually more like 300. Um, but it's 400,000 kilometres to the moon. Yeah. So that's a factor of a thousand further away. So something goes wrong... It's going to take you a couple of days to get home. Is it going to be on a kind of? Um, I read that it's going to be on like a, a pretty highly elliptical orbit. Is that is that to kind of bring it closer to Earth for those points at which you can distribute? I think it's actually to, to it? bring it closer to the Moon. Ah, right. Um, yeah. Because it's if you're in a very elliptical orbit, you can just kind of skim quite close to the the surface of an object. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a circular orbit, it's it's a lot harder to get closer because you tend to just crash (laughs) (laughs) but yeah this is all this is all kind of um preparing for more human feet on the moon and potential Mm -hmm. missions to mars isn't it yes yes it is so the the lunar gateway um was a much is a very long-term plan Uh, the original plan was to have everything ready and up and running by 2028 um and the, the full Lunar Gateway is going to be on that kind of timeline. Um, the habitation module is due to go up in 2025 and the spirit in 2027. Um, however, a couple of years ago, uh, President Trump said that he wanted um, the first woman on the moon to be on the moon by 2024. So now they're going to build a bit of the Lunar Gateway, enough to have the Artemis mission. Um, and then... Uh, they'll carry on building it and make it much more long-term as we go. Um, So there's a slight change there in how it's going to work. I had read... There some some from some voices there was a bit of criticism of it. And one of the criticisms that I heard was, um, wouldn't it be better to... Obviously, it'd be more difficult, but would it be better to concentrate on creating like a manned or an occupied lunar base on on the actual surface of the moon? Because that's because that's where things like water ice are that you can use for oxygen and creating propellant. And things yeah, like that. that's that's one of those big um, frictions in any kind of human space exploration. Yeah. Is do you, do you do it in orbit? Do you do it on the surface? But uh, there's 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 pros and cons of both because it's a lot 
easier to get home if you're already in orbit. Yeah. If something goes wrong, um, it's a lot easier to build something in orbit. And I think the long-term goal is that they're then going to use the lunar gateway to to put something down on the surface. Um, but we know how to build a space station. We have no idea. I say we like it's me. Um, <laughs> Space agencies know how to build space agents uh, to build space stations. They don't know how to build a, a lunar base yet, mm. so that's going to take some time and probably people experimenting with giant three D printers on the surface <laughs> of the moon and things like that. With the uh, lunar gateway, do we do we know um, how the Russians, Roscosmos, are going to be involved in it? Are, are they going to occupy? Um, uh, a wing of it like they do the ISS? or They are going to be building uh, some of the modules. I do know that. I can't remember off the top of my, ha- top of my head exactly which ones. Um, but again, it, it's a sort of similar deal to the European Space Agency. It is led by NASA this time. The International Space Station was very much a 50-50, um, but this one is being led by NASA. Um, but... Uh, from from what I understand, pretty much the only nation which is sort of locked out from being able to work on the Lunar Gateway is the Chinese, um, because there is a law that says uh, no um, no American a- agency or company is allowed to work with China on spaceflight. Right. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty much like if you can build something, <laughs> if you want to give us something, we'll let you go. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Yeah. Do, do we know how many people that um, can be there at one time? Um, I think that's one of those things they're trying to work out. Um, I, I think the Orion module can hold up to seven, but I might be thinking of the crew capsules from SpaceX. Right. Um, I do know that the Orion, they can hold more than a Soyuz, yeah. which is three people. So um, I think the plan is they'll have some people staying in orbit as kind of support, L- like they had with the Apollo missions. You know, you had the command pilot in orbit and you had the people going down on the, the lunar surface. And I think it's going to be a, mm. a similar situation. I suppose when you think about it, there's also kind of uh, the prospect for some pretty cool science to be done as well, you know, kind of beyond the influence of Earth's magnetosphere and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of ze- proper zero gravity experiments. You know, they could work yeah. out a lot, more, a lot more stuff about kind of the effects of space on the human body and things. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who have been uh, looking at experiments because there's always been sort of if you can put like a radio telescope or something on the far side of the moon, yeah. um, it's going to be completely shielded from the radio loud earth and things like that um so there's a lot of people who are doing excited about experimenting well what about when you're on the far side in orbit Mm. and things like that so fantastic mm. well uh traveling a bit further out um from earth and its moon um another ESA mission that's coming up over the next decade is juice which is going to be analyzing the Juvian system, so Jupiter and its and its icy moons. JUICE stands for Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. It's due to launch in 2020 and arrive at Jupiter in 2029, and it's going to spend about three and a half years at the the Jupiter system. The ultimate goal is to explore Jupiter, but mostly its three of its Galilean moons, Ganymede, which is the largest moon in the solar system, Europa, and Callisto. And the reason that these are such targets for exploration is because they are all pretty much thought to have um, subsurface oceans beneath their beneath their interior. And as we kind of know from Earth, if you're looking for conditions suitable for supporting life, you kind of go where the water is. So these kind of salty subsurface oceans 
um, are, are, are potential targets to to look for conditions suitable for life. I suppose it, it kind of harks back to the uh, Cassini mission, you know, and, and it's what, what it did at Enceladus, kind of diving through the uh, plumes that erupt from um, Enceladus's subsurface ocean. Um, so I think that the main focus of it is going to be Ganymede. As I said, it's the um, largest moon in the solar system, and it's got um, ten different instruments to kind of analyze uh, well Jupiter's atmosphere, but also to study the surface and the interior of the ice moons. It's got like a spectrometer and an instrument called an ice penetrating radar, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so it's ultimately kind of working out how how deep these oceans go, um, whether whether or not there are plumes, for example, on on Europa. Bursting up through the surface, maybe you know there could be an analysis of that. Um, but as well as kind of searching for conditions of life, it's also kind of um, firstly, it's it's also exploring the solar system a bit more to find out how the solar system works. But it's also there's kind of a view to like exoplanets because it's kind of looking at um, gas giants and how habitable conditions could develop on moons around gas giants and, and should we be looking at other moons around other gas giants as as, as we kind of reach out into the into the galaxy and, and look for more um potential potentially habitable uh, bodies? I, I think I'm quite excited about this one because the only other mission that's really gone to to look specific well, that has looked at the icy moons was Cassini. And that was built before we even knew that these plumes existed. We basically knew nothing about these icy moons, really, apart from, you know, the brief glimpses we'd had with Voyager and so on. Um, so I think the fact that this has been built knowing that these things exist um, and that you might be able to, to taste the water of another world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's... Should be fascinating to find out what's in there. Yeah, I think it's a similar kind of situation where these Galilean moons, um, so-called because they were discovered by Galileo, um, they were they, they've been explored by by kind of missions like Galileo and, and Voyager in the past. But this is kind of a dedicated mission to actually go to them and yeah, look look hopefully peer but below the surfaces and, and kind of see what's going on. Yeah. It's also it feels like they're kind of because. They're, they're moons, but some of them are larger than Mercury, some yeah. of these icy moons. Um, uh, I think Ganymede is. Um, and they are kind of like they, – they deserve some respect. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's like they are, they are worth going and investigating, so I, I'm glad that somebody is. Yeah, I, yeah as, as you said, um, Ezzy, uh, Ganymede is – uh, bigger than Pluto and Mercury, um, and it's the only moon with a magnetic field. So it's got so it's got aurora. Um, so that's one of the things that um, the the Juice mission is going to be kind of exploring. Oh, that's pretty! It's yeah. like an, an icy moon with aurora over the top of it. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be amazing to see any photos and images that come out of that. Yeah, good point, actually, because that's that's one of the things that we kind of, I I've personally have kind of missed from the kind of retiring of um, well, New Horizons at Pluto. Anyway, it's kind of currently exploring the Kuiper Belt, but also kind of Cassini, you know, every week there seemed to be a new cool um, image released by Carolyn Porco and her, her Cassini imaging yeah. team, and it was just amazing to see them. Because so you've, you've got Juno, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter, but that only has a camera on it because NASA's PR department said you have to put a camera on it pretty much. <laughs> um, that's not 100% true, but <laughs> it's close enough. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a while since we've had like a proper... I mean, other than the, you know, the 2,700 things that are around Mars at the moment. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's always lots of stuff going on at Mars. But like the, the gas giants, I think, have a, like a particular beauty. So it'll be 
fun to get some pictures back from them quite regularly. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I've been looking at two of ESA's uh, missions that will be specifically looking at exoplanets. Um, the first is PLATO, scheduled for launch in 2026. PLATO stands for Planetary Transits and Oscillations of Stars. Um, and it's an exoplanet hunting mission that will feature the largest digital combined camera ever launched into space. Cool. Um, it's going to be based 1.5 million kilometres from Earth. And it's going to look uh, for Earth-like worlds in habitable zones of sun-like stars, following in the footsteps of the CHEOPS mission, uh, which was launched in 2019. Uh, its main aim during its four-year stint is to study hundreds and thousands of target stars, hopefully discovering thousands of new exoplanets and possible habitable worlds. And it's going to be looking at the seismic activity of those host stars, helping us to get insight into their age. I was... Astroseismology is one of those things that it doesn't sound like it should work. <laughs> We're going to look for star quakes and then that can tell us all about the things that are going on inside of it. Um, but it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also crazy what they can do because I think Plato is going to be using the, that um, technique, the radial velocity method, which basically works by as a planet orbits a star – uh, the star itself does a kind of small counter orbit. Mm. Um, it kind of wobbles as uh, the planet tugs gravitationally on it. And that makes it kind of wobble back and forth. And you, they can use like the Doppler effects, like the Doppler shift mm -hmm. to kind of work out um, what, what, the, what the planet must be like. As, yeah. a result, as a result of its tug, so they can then work out like its density and its mass and therefore whether it might um, be rocky or might be kind of habitable. And yeah. if you kind of combine that with um, kind of spectrographic... Uh, analysis of starlight shining through the planet's atmosphere, then then you can tell what its chemical composition is. So, so you could tell whether or not a planet is Earth-like, rocky, yeah. and potentially has like water and, and things in its, in its atmosphere that conditions for supporting life. We're, we're being able to tell quite a lot about planets these days. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, as uh, mentioned, it's got this uh, very large digital combined camera. Um, and just to break that down, um, it uses... Um, CCD sensors, which are advanced versions of the charged coupled device that we use in everyday digital cameras. Oh, cool. Um, and that's going to be using those to monitor the brightness of the stars. Um, and as as you're mentioning, Ian, it's, it's going to be looking at the dimming and brightening caused by um, the planets moving in front of the stars. Um, there's going to be 26 telescopes all mounted on the satellite platform. That's a lot of telescopes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and each sensor will produce 20 megapixels. And as there's 104 sensors, this means that the 26 telescopes will get to 80 megapixels um, each, resulting in a full satellite total of 2.12 gigapixels. Um, Basically, that's going to be twice as much capability as the Gaia mission. You, you can tell that you've got a good camera when you're talking gigapixels. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's a bit more than I've got on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, time for an upgrade, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also scheduled for 2028 is the launch of Aerial, which is the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey bit of a mouthful that one um, which, <laughs> just just stick with aerial <laughs> yeah, which will focus on in greater depth on what exoplanets are actually made of um, it's based at the same distance from earth as plato um, and it's going to study how exoplanets formed and how they evolve by looking at a diverse sample of about 1000 extrasolar planets uh, looking at visible and infrared wavelengths um It's the first mission dedicated to measuring the chemical composition and thermal structures of these exoplanets, Uh, although thousands have already been discovered with a huge range of masses, sizes and orbits. There's no apparent pattern linking these characteristics to the nature of the parent star. And we don't know how the planet's chemistry is linked to the environment where it formed or whether the type of host star drives the physics and chemistry of the planet's evolution. So by finding these links, Area will attempt to answer these questions and help us hopefully understand more about Earth's place in the universe as well. Uh, As well as detecting signs of well-known planet ingredients, such as water vapour, carbon dioxide and methane, Aerial will measure exotic metallic compounds comparing the planet to its host star, as well as looking at cloud systems and atmospheric variations. And uh, it's uh, going to be launched using one of ESA's new Ariane 6 rockets. Uh, These weigh 900 tonnes with a full payload, which is roughly equivalent to one and a half Airbus A380 passenger planes. That's a big rocket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose suppose like missions like this, I mean, it 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 takes you back to you know, the, the, the first exoplanets being discovered in kind of the early 90s and then Kepler kind of opening up and, and mm. telling us that around every star there is pretty much on average at least one exoplanet around it. So, and then the uh, TESS mission has been discovering more exoplanets. So these these kind of smaller missions, relatively smaller missions, it's more about following up the discovery of exoplanets and analysing them, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's definitely... Uh, astronomers are moving from um, what they call the stamp collecting phase, um, technical term, um, which is when you're just sort of going like, oh, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, um, to actually trying to sort of drill down and look at these. Um, and I, I think, again, that's that's a very exciting place to be on the cusp of. It's kind of like there's there's so much of astronomy that's been, you know, people have been researching for centuries, let alone years um that it's kind of this is the one thing that it's like it's still quite new and shiny and yeah. every discovery <laughs> is an actual discovery um so it's it's one of those things i'm always excited to hear more about from exoplanet missions um i do kind of wish that that there would everybody always seems to focus in on the like the habitable zones around sun-like stars yeah um <laughs> which is understandable because you know it's the most earth-like planet it might be some place that we can actually go to one day but I, I kind of like hope that they 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 sort of broaden things out a bit in the future. I want to know what other planets there are like out there. Yeah, I always love that whenever you, you get those um, cool discoveries. You know, we we find a we find a planet where it rains glass or something. Yeah, you know, it's like completely like in, in, uh, uninhabitable, but like. You know, it's just cool, isn't it? Yeah, my yeah. my favorite one about those is the it rain. There's a planet where it rains rubies, and the the winds are made of sapphires. 
<laughs> which sounds very, very lovely and would be horrible to visit. <laughs> Imagine pelted by stones. <laughs> I was murdered by a sapphire wind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's a weird and wonderful place out there in the universe and uncovering it a bit more every year. Yeah. Um, those are just three of the missions that ESA are planning on running over the next 10 years or so. Uh, there are, however, several more which are due to launch soon. Due for launch in 2022, the Euclid satellite will study cosmic structure, looking at galaxies and clusters to a distance of 10 billion years. In 2023, a joint mission between ESA and the Chinese Academy of Sciences, the Solar Wind Magnetosphere Ionosphere Link Explorer, which has a nice acronym SMILE, will explore the connection between the Earth and Sun. Heading for the asteroid Didymos in 2024, the HERA mission will investigate how a future mission could one day deflect a civilization-killing asteroid. And at some time in the 2030s, ESA is going to join forces with NASA to mount a new mission to Mars, which will go and collect rock samples cached by NASA's Mars 2020 rover. The Athena X-ray telescope is due to launch in 2031 and begin mapping out the clouds of gas throughout the universe and around black holes. And then finally, in 2034, the agency plan on launching the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, otherwise known as LISA, a trio of satellites that will work together to detect small and weak gravitational waves. Coming up next week, from the 21st to the 28th of February 2020, is the annual citizen science project Star Count to monitor light pollution. Our editor Chris talked to Emma Marrington at CPRE, the countryside charity, who organised the project, about the need to protect and enhance dark skies. He started off by asking Emma exactly what light pollution is. Light pollution is, you know, many people are familiar with the the orange glow around towns, cities, maybe a, a single domestic security light causing a problem, or it could be a light on a, on a farm. So even if it's in the middle of nowhere, you can still have an issue of light pollution. And so really light pollution is light that's um, shining where it's not needed or wanted. So you have, um, there are three main types. The light you have, you know, from street lights, the sort of the ambient lighting. Um, it's glare you can have from a single source of light. So for example, if you're somebody's driving along a road and there's a a security light outside a building, that can cause the glare as well. And then there's also uh, what's called light trespass. So that's light spilling into people's homes from lighting outside. Light pollution is one of these things that is a problem we can fix. And it's only been maybe since the 60s, really light has become part of of an issue. and, And people do naturally, I think, feel more secure with lighting around. And we're not saying there shouldn't be any lighting at all, but it's about the right lighting, where it's needed, you know, well-designed lighting and directly where it's needed. But light pollution can affect people, can affect wildlife. So for people, certainly, you know, we've heard where people have been told by local councils, fit thicker curtains, you know, you have street lighting outside. Um, one where I live in southwest London, I, I wrote to the council when I moved in and said, this light's really bad, can you fit a shield? And they did. And so that has reduced it a bit. But, um, you know, for a lot of people, you know, some people have told us they've uh, had to move house due to the problem of light pollution. And for wildlife as well, I'm sure many of your your listeners are familiar with hearing birds singing late into the night. Birds that probably shouldn't be singing late into the night, but they have a streetlight stuck, you know, going into the tree. And so, of course, you know, psychologically, they think, oh, it's daylight. And so it affects their their natural behaviour as well. What about kind of um, starry skies and the view mm. of the um, 
you know, the kind of Milky Way and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's important? I think that's so important to, I mean, for, for me, I grew up near Heathrow Airport. So, you know, the edge of London, really, really busy, lots of light. And uh, my mum used to take me away youth hosteling when I was in my teens, when it was still, you know, still fairly cheap. And um, I can remember going out to places like the uh, North York Moors National Park, Yorkshire Dales, and seeing the dark sky and being absolutely amazed because I'd, I'd never seen such darkness. And so I think for a lot of people, it's having that connection to part of our natural heritage. And, you know, that's the thing with, you know, a dark, starry sky. I, mean, I know all your listeners will be uh, preaching to the converted here, but it is part of our heritage. It's connection to stopping and looking up in, in wonder. It's one of the most magical sights that the countryside can offer. And it's something that with good lighting design, you could have in more urban environments too. Great. And when you say good lighting design, can mm. you give some kind of example as to what that would look like? In yeah. A, in, a, in a kind of, um, in, the, in the home and maybe also um, on the street. Yeah, of course. So, you know, people, um, everybody can do something about light pollution at the local level, uh, you know, local councils particularly, but even individuals. So you can make sure your lighting, if you've got uh, lighting outside your homes, is only used when it's needed. Um, so you can have it on timers and also that it's directional so it's not shining out across into other people's homes so you can have well-designed lighting that's pointing where it's needed instead of splaying up into the night sky and then you know to, to councils as well it's about ensuring that any new development so if there is any housing development so ensuring the lighting is sensitive and it's well designed. So, for example, full cut, cut off flat glass broadly, um, that the, the lighting poles are, are the right height for what's needed. You can also look at um, a lot of councils now are looking at dimming schemes. So obviously in consultation with, with the public. So, for example, you could have local discretion. You'd have 100% lighting on a Saturday night in the town centre. But in a residential street, you could reduce the lighting um, you know, perhaps after 11 midnight commonly, to, to a lower level. And so you can, you know, have that discretion. And there are some councils now who are switching off street lighting overnight, which is, you know, often controversial between midnight and five in the morning. Um, and we did a survey many years ago now um, of English local authorities and what the motivations were to do that. And it was money and energy saving with I, you know, my feeling was the reduction in light pollution more of a happy coincidence. Um, but of course, you know, uh, switching off lighting should only be done with consultation with the local community and with the police as well to ensure it's the right solution for that area. So um, one of the things you're doing is um, the star star count that's mm. taking place um, later this month. Yes. Um, what does that involve? Yeah, so what we want people to do, so this is a really easy way to get people connected to the wonder of the night sky and maybe it could be you know the first step on their journey to, to getting into astronomy as well and it's very simple we want people to look up at the orion constellation that's towards the south of the sky many or all satellite dishes not just many uh point towards the south of the sky so if you're in an urban area you can locate yourself using that and you look for the four corner stars so it forms a rectangle there's four corner stars and then the orion's three star belt 
And what we want people to do is count the number of stars they can see within the, the rectangle. So not including the corner stars, but within the rectangle. So, for example, me, uh, where I live in southwest London, uh, I think previously I've counted seven because I'm in a you know, heavily light polluted area. And I think it was five last year. So that is uh, showing variation. And of course, you know, we'd like people to spend a little bit of time to let their eyes adjust to the darkness. And then um, at least at least 10 minutes, you know, longer if they can. You know, it's a February and it's cold. And then look at the sky, count the number of stars they can see. And then what we'll do is we're working with we're working with the British Astronomical Association's Commission for Dark Skies as well. I should have pointed that out. And so what we'll do is take people's star counts and then we use those star counts to create a map around the country of what people saw. So it's a really good way of, you know, a bit of citizen science, an easy way of getting involved. And broadly, um, you know, I've been working with uh, Bob Meisen, who I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with. Um, if you can see fewer than 10 stars in the constellation, that indicates severe light pollution. If you see more than 30, that's truly dark skies. So that is broadly you know, how how the differences around the country are. Great. Um, so um, you, you mentioned um, that this is a, year, a, a yearly thing. Um, yes. Have you been, how many years have you been doing um, the Star Count for now? Oh, well, uh, I, I was here at the start of it. Right. <laughs> it was in, uh, I was actually, it was, I was fairly new at CPRE and uh, went to the, the Commission for Dark Skies. There were the Campaign for Dark Skies at the time, a conference in Portsmouth. And uh, I met some uh, CPRE Surrey people there. And one of them um, is called David Gilbert, who's sadly no longer with us. But he had a conversation about how, wouldn't it be great if we get people counting stars? Just, you know, he was an astronomer as well. Um, to get people involved and get people passionate about star counting and, and the stars. And um, so we, we had a pilot in, I think it was winter 2006, then we uh, had it run it from 2011 to 2014, had a little bit of a pause and uh, brought it back in 2019. So uh, and we were very glad that uh, 2,300 people took part in 2019. So this time we'd like even more people to get out and have a look. And, you know, whether you're, you're, it's your first encounter of really looking up at the sky and thinking, oh, yes, light pollution is a problem or you're, you know, an astronomer and you know exactly what you're looking at. It's everybody having a look, taking part, counting the number of stars they can see, and they're reporting it on our website. And what, you know, that will do as well is help us to, you know, help build up the evidence base for why, you know, more needs to be done to protect and enhance the dark skies we've got. And also that there is a real need to tackle light pollution in many areas of the country. Over those years, what what has um, what have you found? What's been the kind of what's been the results uh, over yeah. over that kind of long period that you've been doing yeah, of this course. citizen science? I mean, yeah, because it is citizen science. It's self selecting, so there might be some people who have who have taken part every year, but there'll be new people too, and so it's, it gives an indication of what people are seeing around the country. And so broadly, for severe light pollution, I think we've ranged between fifty. 2% to 59% having severe light pollution around the country. So that's fewer than 10 stars. And for counting more than 30 stars, that's truly dark skies. I think the last time we did it in 2014, 
it was 4% of respondents had the truly dark skies, whereas in 2019 it was 2%. So it gives us an indication of 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 what's going on but because it's citizen science there will be you know variability as to who's taking part but it really helps us build up a picture and having this interactive map which we started um in 2019 it helps to identify where people have um really good views and then we can link it to so that's about people's view from the ground um in 2016 uh, we published uh, nightlight maps of um, britain's night skies and that was satellite data. So satellites, um, American weather satellites, capturing the amount of light spilling directly up into the night sky at 1.30 in the morning throughout September 2015. And we found that only 22% of England had what we call pristine night skies free of any light pollution. But when... Um, so it's nine different uh, you know, brightness categories, if you like. So the amount of light spilling up. Uh, when you combine it with a second darkest, it was 49%, which was quite surprising. Um, so that's, you know, pretty much half the country has very dark skies. Um, and of course, as you'd expect in the towns and cities, you do have more light pollution. Even in a rural towns, you can still have, um, you know, light spilling up into the night sky. And so with, with the star count, it's getting people involved to build up a picture of what people can see, what they can experience on the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned that it's been um, uh, getting brighter at night. Um, mm. The evidence shows points towards that. Mm. What do you think um, some of the causes of that are? What What are some of the reasons behind that? Does your Does your research in other areas kind of show um, point to certain causes over others? Yeah, I mean, street lighting can is obviously a major. Um, issue but you can have well-designed lighting um you know i know that many people are are very concerned about the sort of you know led lighting is more common nowadays um concerned about you know the bluer rich lighting so there are concerns about the impacts on human health we know about blue light at night that can affect your your body's readiness to sleep um and also concerns about the impact on wildlife but with uh, you know there the, there are lighting te- there is te- lighting technology that you can use that can be better, but it can be you know ensuring well designed lighting if there's new development or changes to lighting of existing development that's one thing and so that goes to the local level. So what we've got at the moment with um, you know, national planning policy has the right wording. It's you know basically should um, have regard to ensure, you know, protecting intrinsically dark skies. And then we also have uh, planning guidance for local authorities on how they need to consider, um, you know, light pollution as part of development. It also considers, for the first time, the impact on astronomy and astronomers and, and, and you know, the experiences people can have. So for that to be a consideration. But it's how it translates at the local level. That That is a major problem so you've got the good national policy but it's you know a should not a must and so you have you know from my experience you have some individuals in local authorities who are really hot on the issue and really take great pride in ensuring they've got good lighting um and then you know there are some who you know there are so many demands you know cuts to budgets and it is it's a huge issue and so what we would like to see is you know to have a strong local uh, lighting policy and local plans. So that's 
you know, basically the document that councils would use to decide on, you know, any new development, et cetera, in the area. So ensure there's a strong policy um, through to you know, neighbourhood plans at a local level. So it, it really does come down to the wording nationally is quite good, but it comes down to, to local action. And that's where the star count, you know, the, the information people are giving us for the star count really helps. So it's not just in terms of, in the case of lo- people locally in their local areas, it's not just things about kind of, um, you know, individual streetlights like directly outside their house, mm. but they can kind of influence um local policy local councils and um you know kind of raise that as an issue absolutely and so you know it can be you know like i say individuals in local authorities there might be some who are really passionate about the issue and there will be some where people power the community can can really lobby and step up and and say to their local authorities, you know, write to local papers, why is this an issue? Speak to their local MP, for example, if it's a real issue. And one other thing to mention is uh, many forms of lighting are now a statutory nuisance. So um, domestic security lighting, for example. So if you've got uh, a neighbour uh, behind you, maybe the light's on all night, it's spilling into your bedroom and you feel you can't do anything. Well, you can. You can contact your local authority and they should be able to monitor the issue as as they would noise. If you're in a situation where you can speak to your neighbour about a lighting issue and they can mediate about it, that's that's the way of tackling it. But otherwise, you can go to your local authority. The way we react to lighting Hmm. um, and the kind of psychological reaction, um, quite often you, you will overcompensate or people want to have a lot of really really bright lighting but actually that that can be a little bit counterproductive can't it yeah yeah I think that you know I mean I've grown up in a a lit country you know I'm used to lighting like I say growing up near Heathrow um but you know there are many people who've who've grown up away from you know a lot of uh, street lighting um places like the um the South Downs National Park, um, which is going to be 10 years this year, surprisingly. Wow. And uh, yes, I was involved with the uh, the designation, the campaign years back. And um, that has dark sky status, which is absolutely amazing. I think it was 13% of the area was pristine night skies free of any light pollution. You wouldn't think in the southeast that that would be such, that could be possible. It is very populated. And so it gives an opportunity for people to get really connected Mm. those places so um, star count is one of those opportunities yeah um just remind us again how we can take part in it yeah of course and so you can find out more information at the moment it's on our website so it's cpre.org.uk forward slash star count or if you just look for cpre star count google that and then um so we're asking people between uh friday the 21st of february through to friday the 28th of february um is the, around the, the new moon so the darkest natural time and um, what we want people to do is go out after about seven-ish in the evening. So perhaps, you know, if you've got children around before bedtime, um, it's something you could do, you know, something exciting. You could get outside and get wrapped up well, you know, take a flask, go off on an adventure and um, let your eyes adjust for at least 10 minutes, um, you know, longer if you can. Then count the number of stars you can see in the Orion constellation. So that's towards the south of the sky. Um, many well, all satellites point that way 
and um, look for the four corner stars. And then you'll see the three star belt. So count the number of stars you can see within the corner stars, but not including the corner. And then go onto our website and simply take um, submit your results. Uh, we'll have a web form available then. And submit your results. What we'll do then is we'll get and work with um, some awesome um, uh, consultancy who worked before on Nightlight, who did the Nightlight mapping for us as well. They will create a, uh, a map of people's star counts. And then we'll, you know, let people know what's what's happening around the country. So it's really easy. It's just get out, count the number of stars you can see. You can report on our website, you know, anything you you spot, for example, if, you know, there's a, a new lighting in your area and that's affecting your view. You can let us know that in the comments. Um, but for many people, I think it will be just a way of, you know, an exciting way to get out and have their first step in you know, the adventure of connecting to the dark sky. Good stuff. Emma, thank you very much for talking to us. Of course. That was Emma Marrington from the Countryside Charity talking about this year's star count, which will run from the 21st to the 28th of February. Coming up between the 2nd and the 9th of March 2020, we here at Sky at Night magazine will be running Back Garden Astronomy Week, where we help you guys get outside and start enjoying the night sky. This time, we're focusing on the moon. Here at Radio Astronomy, we'll be running a series of daily episodes with all the tips and tricks you need to get started in observing the moon. You can join in by signing up at www.skyatnightmagazine.com forward slash backgarden to receive daily updates, charts and a free 62-page beginner's guide to getting you started in stargazing. If you like to get started with your lunar observations early, there's a nice opportunity on the 27th and 28th of February, when the crescent moon lies close to the planet Venus in the evening sky. These are the two brightest objects in the night sky, so they should be very easy to find in the west. If you miss the sight in February, don't worry. The two will line up again in the evenings of the 27th to the 29th of March. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about what ESA is getting up to over the next decade in the March issue of Sky at Night magazine, where we also learn how you can use observations of the moon to benefit science, take a look at solar orbiters' plans to explore the sun, and find out about the hidden world of dark nebula. And not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.